This is podcast 132, entitled Love in the First Degree, and you'll recognize Bananarama. Bananarama. I had so much experience with Bananarama when I was in Germany and um, prior to that. But um, Love in the First Degree is an attempt to talk about the uh, human um, way forward as the way of love in hopefully a non-gag-me-with-a-spoon kind of a way based on my own absolutely personal figuring and uh, thinking at this uh, present moment because the um, the whole point of, uh, of life is to be able to perform open heart surgery on yourself so as to understand yourself and in understanding yourself you become actually very much present with the sort of co-givenness. I think that's a phrase from Schleiermacher, something, not co-createdness, but co-givenness of God and you who operate in a combined, of, a kind of combined oneness throughout your life. And the more you understand about yourself, I feel almost the more you understand about the whole nature of reality with a large R. And I'll return to that theme with a poem by Galsworthy at the end of the short podcast, but I did want to talk about uh, my life, you might say, as a kind of an attempt to understand what it is to be accused of love in the first degree. And I begin then with a quotation from uh, Christopher Isherwood's um, journal entry of uh, dated Easter Day, 1982, which was the 11th of April. He's not well. Sometimes I feel the death fear bothering me again, writes Isherwood. I pray hard to my teacher, that's Swami Prabhavananda, asking him to make me feel his presence, quote, now and in the hour of my death, end of quote. The response I get from this is surprisingly moving. I'm moved to tears of joy and love. I pray for Darling also, Darling being Don Bashardi, Isherwood's partner of 31 years. I pray for Darling also, seeing the two of us kneeling together in his, Swami's, presence. Don't worry about all this uh, Hinduism. Just let that rest. Let it be. Religion is about nothing but love. I know this more and more. Now, um, the uh, character and essence of religion as love is very much on my mind as I look back and look forward both to the unformed meaning of the future in my own experience of life, my own faith development, and hopefully some kind of spiritual advancement, and yet in the back uh, of uh, beyond the past. And I was so, uh, what did the B-52s say, um, I'm leaving my past behind, I'm leaving my behind in the past. <laughs> um, uh, oh, okay. Um, the uh, um, insight was given recently by someone who knows me well, who said, you know, your problem is that you are forging ahead spiritually, but in complete isolation. I was struck by that. It's completely true. Whatever I'm trying to do to prosper and to project and to move forward in a life that is in the first degree, to be accused of love, which is the only accusation that can ever be um, uh, that which is true, right, good, noble, hopeful, and positive and enduring, to quote St. Paul, love never ends. That's not Dracula. That's 1 Corinthians 13. We move forward. <clears throat> and uh, by the way, I used to own a, um, a watch that was... Uh, um, licensed from the Coppola Dracula movie years ago with Gary Oldman, and it had Dracula looking like a escapee from the Loving Spoonful, and it said love never ends. I just thought it was the coolest thing I've ever owned. I gave it away some time ago. And um, 
the isolation of forging ahead without any kind of support is um, is is very sad for me, and it's something that I uh, really ought to work on, and I shall. But um, the isolation of that process, which is uh, moving forward of an advancement in the area of love and faith, which are the same ultimately, um, backed very powerfully by my wife and my sons and by others, but ultimately at this point in my life pursued almost completely solo, <clears throat> whether I like it or not, and I really don't like it. The... Um, the isolation was confirmed recently as I looked back over one aspect of my career and I was a little surprised, but something came together. And this both is intended to help you to see uh, a kind of isolation that may exist in many lives because, in fact, we're all forging ahead uh, on our own, although I envy you if you have a community or a group of colleagues or what uh, Helmut von Moltke said of his own anti-Nazi circle in the 1940s before he was executed. He said, I need people with whom I can think together. Um, but I saw in some ways the isolation of this foraging when I read something that was very interesting. I've always wondered why I got so much resistance from sort of leadership in the Episcopal Church to what seemed to me to be a, 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 an obvious sort of um, uh, retrenching of the central gospel of Christ based upon a call to belief, but most powerfully a call to grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And I made terrible mistakes and was filled with anger and rage and got involved with people who were filled with anger and rage. But nevertheless, I couldn't quite understand, and I saw something uh, clearly the other day. A bishop had died whom I knew. I didn't know her personally, but I did know her close up because of friends of mine who felt persecuted by her. She was a kind of hammer of the Anglo-Catholics, of traditional Anglo-Catholics in the diocese, and was really <coughs> uh, caused uh, someone I love, uh, the, his hair, to turn gray to white almost overnight. This happens in ecclesiastical politics, which are bitter and dreadful. And... Um, after this person died, something she had written long ago was um, spread all over the Internet as a positive, and it may be, but this is what it said, and it helped me to understand the nature of isolation that I had experienced, and I'm moving towards something with this. Bear with me. She wrote, I grew up in a an extreme fundamentalist household, and it wasn't any later than age 9, 10, or 11 that I began to question it, and I began to have doubts and raise them. Well, suddenly the penny dropped. I said, oh my gosh, she grew up in an extreme fundamentalist household. And then I began to look at all the different bishops that I'd run into, especially those who'd been difficult, that is to say, who'd been non-tolerant, <clears throat> and almost to a person. They, and I remember now, they had grown up in evangelical fundamentalist backgrounds, almost to a person. They had come out of Campus Crusade for Christ, or they'd come out of the Southern Baptist Convention, or they'd come out of this, that, or the other thing, or they'd even been ministers in an evangelical denomination. And the ones that had treated me with the greatest consideration, love, and enabling tolerance were almost all what is snobbishly called today cradle Episcopalians, or rather had been to prep school, or had been to boarding school, or were Ivy League-type Episcopalians of a certain sort. And they were the ones who were always the nicest to me, even if ideologically they regarded themselves as on, you know, 130 degrees away from whatever they regarded me being. But I realized that, you know, <clears throat> if these people had grown up in fundamentalist backgrounds and then they heard me using words like, you know, uh, coming to Jesus Christ or faith as, uh, you know, the being born again or the new birth uh, and the forgiveness of sins and those kinds of languages, they would have associated me who had not grown up in this at all. I'd never even met an evangelical till I was 19 years old. They would have seen that as some um, 
as uh, as very threatening because it was like there was a cancer within the very thing to which they had escaped that was from the very place they had escaped from. And that would have thrown them for a loop. They would have said, oh, my gosh, this is a fifth column. Get him out of here. He's a spy. And I wasn't. I, I, I didn't meet an evangelical Christian until I was 19 years old at the University of Chapel Hill. I had never met in my entire life a person who used Jesus as a noun that involved some kind of actual sort of person who might be living today. And I was extremely offended and very upset and walked away and scrupulously avoided all such people in college ever after. Now, ain't that peculiar? Now... So really, uh, what happens is you you began to talk in language that sounded like that, even though it had no organic connection whatsoever <clears throat> to that world from which these bishops had escaped, or from which I should say, from which they had escaped. No wonder that I was seen as a as a maverick and actually as a negative object. So it all that you know the the isolation of being a quote evangelical in the Simeonite Church of England sense within the Episcopal Church, <clears throat> the obvious difficulty of that situation I now see more clearly. Similarly, however, when I see that, you know, you can always be outflanked on the right, and when it actually came down to it, the worst enemies of all were uh, conservative evangelicals on the right of the church, or not in the church at all. These people, almost all the people that later on proved to be hard when it came to grace, hard to the grace of God, hard and really always bucking and resisting the clear message of the gospel about unconditional love for all sorts of conditions, both before, after, and during the Christian confession. That um, These were almost all kids who'd been homeschooled or they'd come out. They were actually from evangelical families. And again, I could not relate. I didn't understand that. But when I saw that almost almost none of them had had sort of grown up in, you know, uh, a world where you would, where certain educational advantages were just considered. And please don't make a moral judgment, but it's a shock when you realize that almost all the people you suddenly were in bed with who ultimately ended up throwing you out of the bed were in fact coming from a completely different cultural milieu with which you had no real ability from your childhood memories to identify whatsoever and that the very people who were pushing you out from the left were actually from the same background but who had just you know vomited it out and run away and I understand all that but then it all becomes clear yes you are forging ahead on your own in isolation it's a terrible situation and by the way help help I need somebody help not just anybody, help, you know, I need someone, help. <clears throat> well, um, you know, that's interesting. I almost thought I, isn't, did, did Bananarama do a, um, did they do a, uh, a cover of help? Um, well, my concluding music is not that. It's already been chosen, and I happen to really love it. But if you can come up with a cover of help, it's not the Beatles. I'd love to put it on a podcast. Now, back to this question uh i've i've said uh that the uh the um love in the first degree creates a kind of in all sorts of ways and you have your own sort of rut shall i say road that you have been treading um in the wet and the snow and in the sort of like john wayne and jeffrey hunter and the searchers you know you're you're what makes a man to wander you know you you're going on yours but mine was this foraging uh cut off from the left and the right because really they were from the same they were from the same kind of uh world and uh so no wonder there's a kind of um aloneness to it well um i want to um to uh 
say that uh, this has brought me to a place of kind of uh, a, 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 a kind of centering on that which is really the, the only core Christian aspect or, or theme worth um, working with, as well as the other theme which is really not in the core Christian tradition, although it's in the margins of it, which with which our Christianity needs to be enhanced and widened. By definition, it simply has to be. I, I think of that uh, that autobiography of John Van Druten, you know, who wrote Life with, uh, what is it, um, I Remember Mama and Bell, Book, and Candle. <clears throat> and I think he wrote uh, I'm a Camera, didn't he, uh, on which... Um, which Cabaret was based and uh, which was originally based on Isherwood's uh, The Berlin Stories. But this is um, the ever-widening circle, the widening circle. It's not a kind of a gesture of defeat. It's a gesture of, of what's actually the truth. What's actually the truth of life? Well, one of the great truths of life, and I think they're – I would say they're two, um, but they're both uh, – extremely important. One is the great Christian anchor. Grace is the anchor to the soul, that God um, uh, did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. In other words, that the heart and soul, heart and soul, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, is the gospel of unconditional absolution, mercy, forgiveness for sinners, both in the world and at the moment of uh, coming into the new birth of a, a new life based upon forgiveness, and then afterwards, there's no difference. There's no other stage. There's no different gospel for Christians, non-Christians. It's the same. God so loved the world, and that is uh, entirely un. Um, don't take anything away from it. Don't take a single iota away from it. And I feel that Tully and Davidian is just about the only person currently in the sort of evangelical world who's saying this. And we, if you don't listen to him, you're going to shipwreck. There's always going to be some nuts and crazies out there who are going to be attracted to a false kind of evangelical mania. But in terms of any kind of real lasting survivability of, of a, in this world, not that it matters because we're all dying, but nevertheless, in this world, any kind of lasting survivability of a Christian kind of uh, for, for skeletal framework, it has got to be based on a completely unequivocal either-or statement that it's not law, it's grace. It's not control, and it's not requirements, and it's not, and, you know, what else are we going to do, or give me some teaching, or give me some this. It is zero, that. It is 100% unconditional love. And that is the gospel. That's always been what grew the church, and that's always been what saved lives. And anything that's less than that will not do, and certainly not today. I have so much evidence of that. I was talking to somebody I really care for the other day, and <clears throat> lapsed, um, lapsed in, from some Christian religion. And, oh, I mean, she so wants to be to hear this message, and yet um, she just is absolutely and completely allergic to any, even iota of law from Christians of any description. But she's profoundly open to a grace message. So let's hear it for Tullian, and let's not let's not quantify or qualify or go back to some kind of economic bartering. There is no core difference whatsoever between the message for all persons that God did not come into the world to condemn the world. Neither do I condemn thee. And the going and sin no more is, is up to you and your own conscience before the ultimate reality of God. And that will always go in a loving direction, no matter what, I can guarantee you. Despite all the also normal sort of Jean Valjean 
slips and fallbacks. And we live in a merciless age. We, the secular world is merciless. The world of the media is merciless. The glitzy world of, of Golden Globe Awards is merciless. Don't think that anyone is giving an iota. They all basically want you dead. Remember what Kerouac said. The world does everything bad on purpose. That is an absolute fact. And if you've ever been through the system of any worldly institution, you'll know how merciless the world is. This great message of God so loved in spite is the core, but add to it the um, nature of reality, that there is a oneness to it all. Underneath the uh, universe is a one love, like Bob Marley saying, one love, let's get together, but that's real. And you see it in love. When you're in love, you, you look at the person and something's going on. Something's going on between the two of you. Um, romantically, that's where it's always most powerful. But with your children at their best or with a friend at his best or with your somebody else at his best, whenever you really connect through the eyes, you know that something is uniting you. The, the, you are recognized in yourself, that which is universally one, the great reality of the self in that person as that part of you that is that. Now, you'll say, oh, it sounds Gnostic. I don't care. That's what it is. Because when you're with in a relationship, that's what's happening. I defy you to say that that's not what's happening in love, that you're not recognizing the oneness. And that's why sex is such a tremendously uh, powerful um, 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 impulse. Now, I um, conclude, hang on just a second, while I get this, uh, this um, uh, poem. Isn't that funny? I um, had uh, gotten the wrong uh, uh, book out because it looks so similar. Uh, the poem uh, is from Galsworthy's Collected Poems, which were um, published in this country in 1934 and edited and prefaced by his wife Ada. And she left out one of the most important ones, I'm sure by design, an earlier religious poem that caused a bit of scandal. But he became, he wasn't the same man at the end of his life, which is not to say he became orthodox, but he, he was very, very open to a religious vision of life. It was just commented upon by people that knew him. And this poem uh, is, uh, I have, thank God I found this book at that wonderful store in uh, Jacksonville called Chamlin's Bookmine. I'm holding it in my hand. This uh, quatrain, it's actually a four-line uh, poem by Galsworthy entitled Reminder, and I read it. Each star to rise and shine and fade, each bird that sings its song and sleeps, each spark of spirit fire that leaps within me of one flame are made. Now one is capitalized and flame is capitalized. Each spark of spirit fire that leaps within me of one flame are made. Now, uh, that is simply my experience pastorally of people. My experience of relationships is that when things are really right, there is a oneness. Uh, Isherwood speaks of, this with, speaks of this with enormous authority and power in the better um, times that he had with um, Don. And uh, I know it from my relationship with Mary. And I've felt it in uh, situations of distress in the hospital, uh, visiting people who were in great trauma, that the that there was a connection and a oneness that was overwhelmingly uh, apparent. So um, I've tried to um, love in the first degree. It's a forging forward, in my case, um, to my regret, uh, in almost complete isolation at this point in my life. And with um, two great emphases, uh, that is... Um, 
the Christian form of acceptation, mercy, grace, which has really been lost uh, in recent years and must simply be found. It's, a, it's an empiric, take that as a description. Unless it's rediscovered in its fullness, there's no hope in the human sense. There's always hope for God, but there's no, needless to say, there's no human hope for the church unless that is recovered as in terms of a real revival of spirituality of that nature in the world today, in our world, the Western world, America. And finally, that we are of one blood. We are of one seed. We are of one flame. And then I gave a little bit of a reminiscence about why the foraging, uh, forging, excuse me, uh, was so um, plainly seen, because in fact, I was getting it both ways by the same people, or by the same school of thought. One a school of thought that could not imagine that um, uh, that the mercy of God could be what it actually is clearly stated to be and comes to be in human life, and the other, which um, was horrified to hear words that sounded like, sounds like, looks like, is it a duck, you know, I wasn't a duck. When people say, you know, what it, they, these cliches, you know, sounds like, looks like, must be a duck, but I wasn't a duck. I was taken for a duck, but I wasn't a duck, and uh, because there was no... Um, you know, there was no real category for whatever they were hearing. So I had to be a duck, and that accounts for the forging. I hope you'll find this of uh, help as you f forge forward uh, towards the great uh, goal of uh, spiritual advancement and development. And by the way, it really doesn't make any difference because you're where you need to be already. Uh, there's a real powerful truth in which you can accept that where you are is right. That is the absolute springboard for wherever you're going next. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? I used to think that was complete gobbledygook or what Kerouac would have said, delightful baloney. It's actually the case. If you can accept that where you are and where you've come from and where you have arrived to is in fact where you should be, that is the moment of peace and serenity that allows you to actually make some kind of independent development. I leave that with you with great joy and here's just a little bit of a sad, powerful Lennon-McCartney truth of the nature of life, which is actually the nature of a world ultimately that has to be of love and when it's not of that I like the Eurogliders do not want to live in this world thank you Help, I need somebody. Help, no, just